this is Web3 Talks, the podcast where we learn how to build Web3 projects directly from Web3 founders. My name is Maciej Budkowski and I talk with the founders about their projects, business models, technology, community building, user acquisition strategies, and more. If you want to start your own project or are just curious about the space, this podcast will bring you answers. Stay tuned. Hello, Rohit. Uh, it's very nice to meet you today. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Because like, you are a very experienced startup person because you're in startups since 2010, as far as I know. So could you tell a little bit about your background? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Messier. Great to be here. So I come from the engineering background. I graduated from IIT Bombay in 2012. Basically, I have been a builder for almost all of my life since college. So I started my first venture in 2010 when I was still in my second year of graduation. And basically, I was building Instacart for India. While I was building that, I quickly realized that this is more operations heavy business. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not that passionate about operations, but with that, I found out that I'm very passionate about consumers and tech. Then I start like started exploring more things. And eventually I found second company after my graduation, which was called Pex Play. And it was a mobile game studio that I bootstrapped and scaled to 3 million users. And while it was at its peak. In somewhere around Jan 2017, I landed up on Bitcoin white paper. And I think like that's the same time I was reading this book, Sapiens as well. Like mm -hmm. many people have heard of this. And this just kind of connected the dots. And I got profound understanding of Bitcoin. Like not like I became the master of Bitcoin, but I realized that it is going to be very, very big. Basically, Crypto is going to change how humans coordinate. And that's the angle like I saw crypto at that point of time. As a result, I just very curiously started spending eight, nine hours a day just reading about blockchains, its applications, where it makes sense, where it doesn't make sense and all of that. And as a result, by end of 2017, I started uh, this company called Mudrex with my friends from college. And the idea was that it was pretty hard for the new users to get into crypto. So basically, we just wanted to make it easy for the new users to invest in crypto because that's how most people start their journey in crypto. Mm -hmm. like they first invest into it and then they start understanding it and then they basically go deeper into the crypto products. Then we have been backed by like a few of the best investors in the world, including Y Combinator, Nawal Ravikant, Nexus Venture Partners, Village Global, etc. And till now, we have helped uh, roughly 40,000 people trade more than $2 billion. And now I spend more of my time into the decentralized finance of things. So we recently started another project called Mesh Finance, where basically Mesh Finance is a community of people who want to bring decentralized finance benefits to every human. Mm -hmm. And the first product we are building in that is like your better savings accounts or, or better checking accounts, basically. So that's in short, like about me, uh, mm -hmm. happy to go deeper into anything like you would like to. 
Yeah, you know, I'd like to follow up with these DeFi projects because I'm not a DeFi expert. Like I used to Uniswap, but that's all my DeFi experience. I've read about it, but like, to be honest, I sometimes feel a little bit worried about connecting my wallet to, you know, some website on the internet created by anonymous person. (laughs) And, you know, because of that, I'd like to ask you, What's, you know, the difference between Madrex and Mesh Finance? Because as you say, Madrex is more about investing, but Mesh Finance, as far as I understood, is like broader in scope. There's also about accounts and saving money. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So let me like first share the difference between CFI and DeFi. So CFI is centralized finance where you basically depend on centralized entities. So for an example, if you store your capital in a bank account today, it's basically you are trusting an institution for your with your money. So whenever you want to move that money, essentially you are asking your bank to move money on your behalf. So money is never with you, it's with someone else. The harm of that could be like multifolds. Number one, since it's a centralized structure, like. Let's say if there is a hacker, since all kind of money is digital today, like we, we are not living in printed money anymore. So in case a hacker get access to like the website of your bank account, they can basically wipe out everything and all the users can lose money. The second harm it can do us is like when you are depositing your capital in a bank account, the banks actually lend that money to like others to make interest on top of it. Mm-hmm. So it's basically humans who are making those decisions. And many times, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, like there might be bad loans. And because of that, you might end up losing money. Those are like the side effects of using centralized structure. In decentralized structure, basically you try to create the same systems where you do not need to depend on few individuals or few institutions to basically achieve the same results. Mm -hmm. Now, what you want to do is you want to store your capital and at the same time, you might want to lend your capital to someone. So decentralized finance is basically like, imagine it like you are trusting a code and code doesn't have a greed. Code cannot behave in different ways, in different situations. It always behaves in the same way. So you are now trusting the code instead of humans. And as a result, like you are moving away from like trusting a centralized entity or central or few institutions or few individuals with your money. And with that, using that mechanism, like you can create multiple different applications, which can involve banking, it can involve payments, it can involve exchange, etc. So that's the broader definition between CFI and DeFi. And you can say like Bitcoin is the first decentralized finance application, which is basically money, where money is not controlled by central governments or the central banks. Uh, it is instead controlled by your code. So similarly, like Mudrex is a centralized platform where people are basically depositing their capital into Mudrex and then Mudrex is basically helping them invest. So essentially a user is at the end of the day trusting Mudrex. If something goes wrong, like basically like users can lose money while mesh is completely decentralized it's basically a piece of code so you are never giving your money to someone like i can't even touch anyone's fund when somebody is depositing capital into mesh finance so that's how mesh finance is decentralized because it no human or institution can basically take away your money or do any action on behalf of you it's basically the same code which always does the same action regardless of if the user is you or me or someone else 
Yeah, that's very clarifying because I was thinking about Modrex not in terms of a fund, because like if you say that it's CFI, it sounds like a fund, you know, that you just give your money and they help you to invest. Yeah. So let me like share a little bit about the product as well. So Mudrex help users invest just like you have mutual funds or ETFs in the real world, like where let's say you want to invest in the finance sector. So instead of picking up one single stock, you basically invest in a basket of stocks. Mm -hmm. Similarly, Mudrex helps you invest in a basket of cryptocurrencies based on a theme. Okay. Uh, that's what Mudrex does. And Mesh is trying to build like a better savings accounts where now you might hold different kind of assets, which could be like USDC, which could be mm -hmm. Ethereum or Bitcoin. So Mesh helps you earn passive yields on top of it. Okay, so the idea is that in CFI world, the bank lends your money and the bank gets the profit, but in DeFi, you lend your own money and you get the profit from lending. Exactly. Okay, so this sounds cool, but you know, when you are about to get either CFI or DeFi customers, they need to trust you with their money, which is pretty challenging thing because, you know, someone needs to say, okay, in Madrex's case, okay, they won't just escape one day and take all our money. And in Mesh Finance case, okay, they need to trust the code that, you know, there's no any hidden bug or anything that will let you take out the money. So how do you acquire users for these financial products? So in case of Mesh Finance, since majority of the risk actually lies on the code side. So we actively run bug bounties where we reward people like up to twenty-five dollars to $50,000 if they find a bug and report it to us so that we can correct the bug as soon as possible. And second, we get the code audited by security firms, smart contract security firms. So mm -hmm. mesh finance smart contracts have been audited by firm called Quantstamp, which is, has been into the space since 2017, again, a Y Combinator backed firm. In case of Mudrex, since it's a centralized platform, people do trust the Mudrex team. But at the same time, there we follow all the protocols. Like we are only interacting with, let's say, tokens, which are good in reputation. We are only interacting with exchanges, which are uh, like mm -hmm. highly valued in terms of reputation. For an example, Coinbase or Binance. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how do you inform users about it? Because, you know, when you say that you do bug bounties or you have security audit, these are things that are easy to get for a technical person. Because, you know, if someone works in open source, they understand bug bounties and so on. But if someone is not technical, do you find this kind of users also using your service and trusting you with, with their money or is it more challenging or maybe there's any other way? Yeah, so for any DeFi product, it takes a little bit of time for users to basically get comfortable themselves with using MetaMask, the wallets, etc. So there is an onboarding journey, there is a learning curve. So I will say anyone who is just coming to crypto, I don't think they use any decentralized application. It takes a little bit of time to get comfortable with MetaMask. Once you get comfortable with MetaMask, the first problem which get resolved is like you get comfortable using the MetaMask with the user experience itself. The second problem gets solved of getting the trust is like, since DeFi is built on blockchains like Ethereum, everything becomes transparent. So you can actually see how much capital is there into those smart contracts, how many people are using it. So all those data are like pretty much public. 
So to see that it doesn't require technical knowledge. When you have open source code, it generally like happens that many people look at that code. So basically you can trust as a social structure that, okay, many people have gone through this code. So having said that, I will say that new users who are just getting into it, they should not be interacting with newer protocols. People who are more familiar with it, like they should interact with, with the DeFi protocols. And having said all of that, all DeFi protocols still has the smart contract risk. It will be zero. It will be more or less if the protocol has been into existence for a longer period of time. So basically the risk goes down as the time progresses. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing that you mentioned that really resonates with me that, you know, when I got into crypto, I was like, oh my God, I have to install some extension to my browser and send... Oh, the first thing was I needed to send money to Binance and it turned out they have account on Seychelles and I was like, what the hell, like where I'm sending my money? Some, you know, small island with <laughs> very little financial supervisory. So it was like very strange. I sent it, I bought crypto, I sent it to my MetaMask, then I minted an NFT and it was like very hard to get comfortable with that. But now I feel like, okay, that's normal. Just like, you know, using my first digital account, you know, yeah, like normal bank account was also very strange because I was thinking, okay, maybe I click a bad thing and then all my money gets out and so on. So I think you're point on here that there's this kind of learning curve and the more people spend time in this environment, the more they are open to other products. Exactly. Also, I think like there is a, since like DeFi itself is pretty new, like not more than two years old, there has to be a lot of work to be done from the community side as well in terms of creating learning content or, or like making people aware of different products, how to use them, basically getting them comfortable with DeFi and using its products. Yeah. And, you know, even Compound, as far as I remember, had this, uh, you know, bug that turned into multi-million dollar losses that like this money went to some random person and they couldn't find who was this person and and it was a problem and compound is one of like the you know poster boys of DeFi. so this is if it can happen to them it can happen to anyone yeah so just one correction there so the bug was not in the product contract of compound so ah. let's say if you landed money on compound you will not lose money at all like that's not what happened okay the bug was into their contract of their token contracts basically the comp contract okay so it was okay. basically like somebody got access to that okay okay like it's still a bug but like user will didn't lose any money because of that okay okay that's good to know that okay and what's the business model for your projects like the mesh and, uh, and the mudrex like how do you plan to you know what's the offer <laughs> that's the first thing and how do you plan to make money if you plan at all on these projects yeah so on mudrex it is pretty similar to any asset management firm or a mutual fund where basically we charge a management fee and a profit share uh, fee kind of a model that's how mudrex makes money in case of Mesh, basically it's always written within the smart contract only. So let's say you deposited $100 and because of the yield, you end up making $110. So some part of the profit and some part of management fees goes into the treasury of Mesh Finance community. And basically the treasury is again managed by the same people who are users of Mesh Finance. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And who's the average user of uh, both of these services? Yeah, so for Mudrex, uh, the average user is someone who is just trying to get into crypto. Because like in 2017, there were like people just wanted to invest in Bitcoin and probably Ethereum, that's it. But today we have the whole asset class within crypto. So now people end up investing into like coins, which they don't have any idea about. So it's basically for people who are trying to get into crypto, but they want to get into crypto with the more sense of what they are actually investing in. Mm -hmm. So Mudrex is basically for people who are just getting into crypto and they want to invest something mm -hmm. for the long term and also on a theme or on a thesis driven models. Mesh finances as of today, it is for people who have invested in crypto. Now they have all these crypto assets, crypto tokens like Ethereum. It could be mm -hmm. stable coins. There is a term where the price is always backed by a dollar. So now instead of like just keeping their assets idle, they can deposit it into mesh finance contracts and start earning yield. Okay. I know that you have this significant startup experience that you mentioned before, you know, founding this grocery company, founding this uh, mobile games company that turned pretty big. How these experiences impacted your web-free projects? Were they, you know, a good thing, but maybe sometimes they were limiting? Yeah, so I think like first it helped me having an understanding of Web3. Like if you are building things, you can know the challenge in the existing infrastructure. So for an example, like if there is any developer who develops game for Apple or Google Play, like you depend on Apple and Google Play for multiple things, including mm -hmm. if your games get approved. If you make any money, like they are actually taking 30% of it. They can always close down your games at any point of time. You have to keep updating the game to be like stay relevant. So all these problems arise. So Web3 is basically a solution where I don't have to go to any app store to ask for a permission to publish my game. Whatever I make, like it basically comes to me because uh, like I am writing the smart contract. And at the same time, like nobody can like take away my game. But once it is published, like it, it won't go irrelevant or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And also like it helps building better economics, like for any game, for any products, users are the biggest assets, which have been like neglected in web 2.0 so far. Web 3.0 is giving us a chance in which like we can actually value the users themselves. Uh, and mm -hmm. that, that's how basically it helped me understand and apply the same things with the newer products I'm building. Yeah, like, you know, th that's interesting thing that you pointed out that for game creators, it's very tangible. Like, you know, these problems with Web2 are very tangible because they literally take 30% every time from your game and you can get banned for some random reasons. Like you can do everything correct, but someone clicks the wrong exactly. button in Facebook and Google or, the, or Apple headquarters and you're done. I know one company in Poland that it's like, you know, $20 million company and <laughs> they get actually like wiped out almost because Facebook just deleted their access to API and they've done it based on some random article that compared this company to Cambridge Analytica, which is totally not true. And it took them a year to just, you know, recover and be able to use the Facebook API once again. And the CEO of this company is a very well-connected guy. So if you are a random anonymous person, you have very little chance to succeed. Exactly. 
Do you have any particular experiences in these Web2 projects that helped you? Like, for example, you've done something in this mobile gaming that like some, for example, user acquisition strategy or product ideas that help you in other projects? Yeah. So so in case of mobile games, like I was using basically Facebook for user acquisition and I used to use memes as the way to acquire users. And eventually like memes are the way of crypto. So I think that has helped me a lot in understanding crypto and basically like spreading the message with the power of memes. So that is one place where uh, the previous experience helped me a lot. The second is like in crypto, like you have to design these uh, tokenomics uh, where like Mm -hmm. you're trying to create an incentive design. So you can pretty much compare them as creating a gamification model. It's basically similar to that. So that is, again, another thing like which I'm able to apply in Web3, which I've learned while building games. That's interesting because like, you know, one of the most fascinating books I've read that about basically about crypto space, although it's not about crypto space, is a book about game design. And Mm -hmm. when I was thinking about, you know, all these incentives, feedback loops and so on, I was like, damn, like this is about crypto. Yeah. Basically. So you can translate these skills to the new products. As far as I understand, like you do a DeFi product with Mesh Finance, but I'm wondering how decentralized you are, because there are different levels of that. Yeah, so if you think about decentralization, there are like multiple vectors. So the first one is like, do I have any control in terms of like if I can control the funds of the users? So in that sense, I cannot. So no one can. Uh, In that sense, like mesh finance is already decentralized. But for an example, what should be the fees? Those decisions are still made by the team. For an example, like which products to make, uh, how to incentivize users, these decisions are still depend on on the team or like a small set of contributors. So slowly, slowly we are trying to like, the way Mesh Finance works is itself unique. So there is no team from Mesh Finance. It's basically Mesh Finance is led by the community. It's it's the contributors all across the globe. So contributors help in terms of development, in terms of programming, in terms of growth, in terms of community building, research, etc. So slowly, slowly we are building this community and we are giving them power. And as the community grows, like it becomes more and more decentralized. So since we don't have a token today, there is no governance involved in which like users can directly vote for things like what should be the fees for an example. But eventually like we will become decentralized once it makes sense, the product has achieved decent scale. We know, okay, now the product is ready to be given in the hands of the community. Okay, and and do you reward the community with some other tokens? No, so today there is no token and that's the philosophy behind Match Finance. Like tokens should be a way to incentivize contribution and basically we are still in the development mode as of today. Okay. And I've heard that you are, you said that you won't hire anyone, like that you and your co-founder will run it just with the community. Is it true? Exactly. Exactly. And like the first problem we are always thinking about is like, how do we remove ourselves as well from the equation? How do we make it that centralized? Okay. And how can you manage to do it? Like, you know, what were the challenges with this kind of approach that you, you chose? Yeah, so I think like the first is like you have to find believers because if you are not hiring someone, that basically means you are not giving dollars to anyone. Yeah. So anyone who is working for it, like they are working on it because they believe in it. And the incentive mechanism will happen via the token in future, like not today probably. 
So it, it takes time if you don't have a token existing to actually bring in the true believers of something you want to build. So I think like in the early days, uh, we were getting like one or two contributors in a week or in like in a month. Today, like we are having like four or five contributors every week and the quality of mm. contributors also keep rising. Now other protocols are also reaching out to us to explore like how can we collaborate with them as well? Because like now we have built a very loyal strong community which can basically make a difference because if people are working on it because they believe in it like that creates a huge difference compared to if somebody mm-hmm. is basically working for it for the dollars or for a salary yeah actually that's one of the things that make me doubt these uh, early token airdrops you know because yeah at the end of the day when people do it for money you know, this famous, I think it was research in Stanford that, you know, they let kids draw for fun mm-hmm. because they like drawing. Yeah. And then they've chosen to give them some rewards. And after they were giving them rewards, these kids stopped just drawing for fun because they were expecting rewards. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, how to balance out this, you know, on one hand, you want to give tokens because, you know, people want to also feel the skin in the game. But on the other hand, you know, it, it may end up with making people less motivated to contribute, which is absurd. But I, I think like like in generally whole Web3 spaces is still learning. Like we will see more and more innovation on the token economic side of things. So like the first phase of DeFi protocols, they were all led by teams which were backed by VCs at the end of the day. Yeah. So there was no such a vision of contributors or like open source development as such. And most of these protocols basically rewarded the early users, which basically makes sense. If you are trying to create a network, the first users who are coming to the network, they are adding much more value. They are taking much more risk than the thousandth user basically. And that's why it makes sense to reward the early users and keep decreasing the reward as more people join in. Now we are entering into a phase where protocols are building without basically getting funds from VCs. They are trying to build from the community approach, from the bottom-up approach. So now we will see more and more tokens start going towards the contributors. It will still keep going to the users where people will figure out like, how do I find out my users who are loyal? like are not just coming for a week to earn an airdrop and just like leaving the next day like these kind of things are happening and we are already seeing some of the protocols so the best thing about DeFi is like since everything is public the data you have like it has magic in it like you can basically analyze every address and figure out Mm -hmm. if this address is worthy of our tokens if this address is actually a loyal user to our product and and that's how like many protocols are going to approach about airdrops in the future that's actually very intriguing because you could just you know track users i mean like you know their addresses from multiple products and see okay this is the kind of user that actually uses the products so maybe we can reward him just in opposition to okay this is the free rider the guy that just comes for the airdrops but doesn't use it at all so you as a as a founder as someone leading the product you can actually like be very selective about the users because users are not that anonymous like they can be anonymous in this terms that you, you you don't see their name but you see their history on the blockchain yep that's intriguing i i haven't thought about that so i got last product question because i know that you've been in yc 
And YC is famous for their crypto projects like Coinbase or Filecoin. And I'm wondering how this experience helped you in crypto. Can you feel this, you know, experience that they got from other projects or is it, you know, different that they help maybe on different levels? Yeah, so I think like YC helped me personally in terms of communication a lot, like the partners helps you communicate much effectively, probably like this. This podcast is also a reflection of that. Mm -hmm. That's one thing where the internal YC team has been helpful. But I think the biggest asset YC has is its community, like its community of 10,000 founders probably today. So you can basically reach out to anyone if you stuck at a problem, like let's say you want to solve some specific problem, you can basically bet that at least five, 10 founders have already gone through that problem. So you can reach out to the community and the community really helps. So I think that's the biggest asset and that's where like we have got the biggest benefit from YC as well. Okay. And are there many crypto startups in YC? Yeah. So I think YC funded a lot of startups in the 2012 to 2014 era, which is where mm -hmm. Coinbase, OpenSea, uh, not OpenSea, Coinbase, Filecoin, some of these companies came in during our batch. So I was in 2019 batch and crypto was literally at the bottom cycle. So mm -hmm. there were not a lot of crypto companies. Uh, there were only two crypto companies in our batch. And now again, I think YC is backing a lot of crypto companies. So these new batches, I'm seeing like 10, 15 companies uh, building on crypto. Okay, cool. So we go to the three other questions, not related to your project, but more to your experiences. Like what was the most mind-blowing web free projects that you've seen so far? Uniswap, I think by far that's the one I have been in love with because that is one protocol where you do not need any single human, like everything is basically done by the code. So that, that has been the magic for me. Yeah, yeah, for me too. Like when I learned that it's just a smart contract on Ethereum, and I was like, what? It's, this is just a piece of code and yep. it does all this stuff. Yeah, it's pretty magical. It's, it's basically, <laughs> a, I think the first version of Uniswap was just 100 lines of code. And it's basically replacing Wall Street. It, it's basically replacing New York Stock Exchange. So you can imagine like how big an impact is that. Yeah, great. And what was the funnest thing that happened during your project development? Something that made <laughs> you laugh? So I think like community, like, so we have contributor calls every other Friday mm -hmm. and I like, I just have fun in those, like, because we get people from different, different side of countries. And recently, like Africa has been one of the most active country in our community. Oh, and like, I just love those people. Like those are the most fun people to work with, to talk with, like they are, they just have high energy and like, mm -hmm. just, just being like fan of them. Okay, so Rohit, the last question, who do you think I should speak with next? Like, is there any person that you think would be a good fit for this kind of conversation? Yeah, so I think you should talk to a good friend of mine, Funny Sama. Mm -hmm. uh, he is building this project called bip.so, mm -hmm. which is basically a place where people can contribute to community-driven projects or basically a notion but for DAOs, but decentralized organizations. Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting because I hear from many DAO contributors that it's pretty hectic environment. Exactly. <laughs>
Okay, okay. Thanks a lot, Dan. And I will definitely follow up and ask you for, you know, for some introduction. Sounds good, Masiak. It was a pleasure being here with you. Yeah, thanks a lot and have a good day. You too.